Welcome to Office Hours with DPT. This series is run by the Dartmouth Political Times, a non-partisan online publication at Dartmouth College. We aim to host discussions about all things politics and current affairs with Dartmouth professors and community members. I'm your host, Dhruv Uppal, a 22 at Dartmouth College. Hi, I'm Madeline Gochi, and I'm your co-host for this episode. In mid-April 2020, the IMF declared that the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic would be the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. In this episode, we take a look back at history and analyze the causes of, effects of, and lessons from the Great Depression, as well as how the current crisis might impact globalization. The date is the 27th of April 2020, and we're talking to Stefan Link, Professor of Economic History at Dartmouth College. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get into today's topic, um, could you briefly tell us a little bit about your areas of expertise, um, as well as the classes that you teach at Dartmouth? Sure. So I teach economic history at Dartmouth, and uh, one of the courses that uh, I've been teaching a lot and that has uh, gotten good response and good turnout from students consistently is uh, is an, a survey overview over 200 years of global economic history from uh, 1800 to uh, more or less uh, the present, and it's actually one that uh, I'm teaching currently too uh, remotely. And um, more to the point of the topic of our conversation today, maybe I also teach a class uh, which will be featured again uh, this summer remotely too for the first time, is a class on the global 1930s, thinking about the Great Depression as a global crisis, and also thinking about uh, responses to the Great Depression and the transformation that the Great Depression caused as uh, a global uh, event. So uh, a class that really tries to, uh, to uh, dig into the 1930s um, as, uh, as a transformative global crisis. I also teach one class on uh, the intellectual history of capitalism, which is essentially a reading course of the classics from uh, Smith uh, over Keynes and Hayek to... Um, uh, Thomas Piketty, if you want, <laughs> is, is, is often on the syllabus. In my own work, um, I, uh, I just finished a book which is on the globalization of the automobile industry during the 1930s, indeed. Uh, so I look at how uh, activist states in the 1930s uh, have shaped uh, domestic automobile sectors. Uh, so I characterize the 1930s uh, not only as a decade of economic crisis, but also of intense industrial competition. I look in particular at Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia and their connections, their technology transfers from the American automobile industry. And this book will be out with Princeton uh, later this year. Um, currently, well, apart from running a half half day daycare here at home uh, with my with my uh, with my daughter uh, I'm, I'm gearing up to um, uh, for for next project which is uh, on the global history of the Great Depression as seen through the lens of the World Economic Conference in London of uh, 19, uh, 1933 so this is currently uh, what I'm uh, what I'm doing and I think broadly speaking you know my work concerns um, really questions of comparative economic development uh, with uh, a keen focus on the, well, power differentials that uh, structure the international uh, political economy at, at, any, at any, point in, uh, any point in time. That's really awesome. Uh, and I hope that we'll get to touch on some of those topics uh, today in the podcast. Um, so I'd like to start a discussion um, by talking about globalization. Uh, in a 2018 sure. article that you wrote, 
Uh, you talk about the likelihood of another deglobalizing event that's similar to the Great Depression. Uh, could you give us a brief summary of the history of globalization for listeners, as well as the argument of your article? Yeah, sure. So uh, this article was written uh, two years ago, uh, more or less, and uh, you know, response to the kind of conversation uh, that uh, had become current since 2016, really triggered, I think, by um, mostly uh, the uh, election of Trump to the American presidency and uh, the beginning of uh, the whole rigmarole in the United Kingdom about Brexit, which uh, also the referendum took place in uh, 2016, and inc increasing concern about what was called uh, deglobalization, uh, a concern that uh, the kind of economic integration that had uh, characterized the world economy, uh, at least since the 1990s, was going to be uh, rolled back. And there was a, was a sense um, that I wanted to try and... Uh, a, a, you know, unpack that deglobalization is, uh, well, two things. First of all, uh, to be understood as simply a process of more or less economic integration, so uh, greater or lesser capital flows, more or less uh, trade uh, exposure of, uh, of individual national uh, economies. And this seemed to me to be a, a very simplistic way of thinking about it. Uh, not taking into account, well, precisely the uh, political architecture of how uh, every type of economic integration, every era of economic integration that we've seen since the 19th century is structured. And the other, uh, the other point that I wanted to take up in this article is uh, the sense that uh, deglobalization is essentially a policy failure. Uh, and so in the, in the conversation of, uh, about deglobalization, uh, you know, after 2016, I think there was a great anxiety that uh, a kind of backlash uh, in uh, industrialized nations uh, against uh, globalization, often seen as populist, often described as populist, would cause economic crisis. And there were, you know, the warning is always in reference to the Great Depression because it is essentially the example par excellence uh, of, uh, of deglobalization, the crisis of, uh, of deglobalization in economic history. And what I would simply wanted to draw attention to is that that's not quite how it happened. It wasn't, uh, you know, misguided policies that caused the Great Depression. Uh, it was rather the other way around. It was uh, the uh, acute and encompassing crisis that was the Great Depression, globally speaking, that caused nations to, well, if you want to use the flat term, deglobalize, and but I, what I would argue is much uh, is a much more useful way to think about it, to simply rearrange their uh, different uh, engagements with uh, global markets for uh, capital and, and goods. So uh, part of what's coming out of this article is essentially, you know, if you want a skepticism towards uh, the term of deglobalization, uh, in and of itself, I'd, uh, I think we should, uh, you know, it, it might actually be worth retiring that term uh, and simply uh, talk about, well, moments in which there are momentous and quite profound uh, reshufflings of the p political architecture of the international economy. I think that is what we, uh, you know, should usefully be thinking about rather than uh, a sense in which there is only more or less uh, integration. I think we need to think about the structure of uh, that integration, it might be worth uh, it might be worth adding in this context that actually globalization itself is a term that comes out of the 1990s. So uh, you know it's a fairly recent term and that comes out of a particular moment uh, after the collapse of communism, 
where I think uh, among um, policy, policy circles at large, uh, especially the large international institutions, there was a sense that uh, a kind of economic integration based on um, just, you know, uh, generally liberalizing prescriptions, uh, you know, here the, 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 the catchphrase would be the Washington Consensus, is essentially the be-all and end-all wisdom of global economic integration and that this is the direction that the global economy would simply take. Uh, so, you know, the globalization, the term itself, is wrapped up in this uh, particular moment in time. If you were to look at earlier phases of economic integration, uh, you know, uh, people use different terms. For example, in the 1970s, what, uh, what people talked about was economic interdependency. Uh, was the big catchword. If you were to look at the 1920s and even 1930s, um, people would talk about world economy. Uh, so globalization, I think, it, in, it, in, it, in and of itself is wrapped up in a particular understanding of what actually economic integration enta entails that may, you know, it turns out, turned out after 2008 already, it's, it's becoming even more clear as we speak, uh, is uh, is somewhat flat or, again, leaves out uh, a lot of the interesting questions about precisely the type of structure of economic integration. So that's what I was trying to do uh, in this article. So you, you mentioned the architecture of globalization and it's a political process, basically. So could you briefly paint us a picture of what that architecture looked like in the 1930s and what it looks like now? Um, you mentioned the Washington Consensus as well. Right. Um, so I think uh, to understand the type of uh, the structure of the global economy that um, the Great Depression, well, really, uh, you know, essentially dismantled and uh, affected a, a large scale uh, of which it affected a large scale reconfiguration. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's worth recalling how much it had to uh, had in common with uh, the world economy that prevailed prior to 1914. And this was a global economy that uh, had been drawn together, if you want, uh, under imperial auspices. In particular, the, the British Empire was, uh, was, uh, was very important uh, for bringing far-flung areas of the world over the course of the 19th century into, well, conversation with each other, into trade with each other. And the British Empire was also important in that prior to 1914, it was the major capital exporter that essentially funded uh, development uh, in, uh, in the world uh, at large. But this development took a particular shape. So here we come to the architecture and the structure. The development that uh, you saw or the structure of development that characterized this pre 1914 world and that still prevailed at the eve uh, of uh, the Great uh, Depression was one that uh, featured a stark division of labor, uh, if you want, between uh, really a small manufacturing core in which industry and manufacturing took place, mostly located in uh, Northwestern Europe and in the manufacturing centers of the United States. And uh, this manufacturing core, you know, traded uh, its manufacturers against raw materials, which is agricultural goods, cash crops, but also extractive goods, uh, think mining, uh, which uh, th that's a kind of economic activity that was done in pretty much the rest of the world, especially the global south. And to the extent that the global south was connected to the world economy, it was through exporting these raw materials in return for the manufacturers. It's been called a great specialization 
Uh, so, uh, you know, the great specialization, stark division of labor between uh, manufacturing and uh, raw material uh, uh, producers. And so this was uh, the, the, the world that still really prevailed uh, on the eve of uh, the Great, uh, on the eve of the Great Depression. And um, the Great Depression, um, if you want, uh, really attacked the core pillars of, uh, of this world in the sense that one feature of it, uh, globally speaking, that uh, often gets um, you know, overlooked when we talk about uh, the Great Depression um, in a historical perspective is that it was a real crisis for raw material producers. They were mired in deflation, so the kind of price declines that were characteristic of the Great Deflation caused agricultural producers, uh, raw material exporters, the global south to, um, to encounter a situation in which their engagement to global markets was no longer tenable. Price declines were so catastrophic and so steep that essentially the whole division of labor in which you export raw materials and import, uh, import manufactured goods uh, was thrown into question. You were no longer able to afford any manufacturers because your, uh, the, the, your exports, which were universally, almost universally primary products, no longer found markets. And this triggered a re reconfiguration in the sense that this took a long time actually for... Um, for policymakers to understand and really to implement, and first it was emergency measures, uh, so uh, you know to stop the outflow flow of uh, of capital and to try and fortify uh, the balance of payments. Um, nations across the global south, to the extent that they could, implement capital controls, uh, import barriers. Uh, the long drawn out effect of this was a weaning from uh, the old global connections and the emergence of a different structure of economic integration, in which now a kind of nationalist path towards industrial development was really the one policy prescription that you could see emerging across the world. And this um, really characterized throughout the remainder of the 20th century development efforts um, of uh, nations across the world. Uh, it came into its own even more so after decolonization. You had more, uh, more independent states that could try and pursue uh, this type of policy. It turns out it was incredibly difficult to pull off a kind of uh, catch-up industrialization. It was really only uh, you know, in East Asia and, uh, of course, over the last 20, 30 years with China, where you could see this uh, coming into its own as a roaring success. But if you compare the world we live in today, you know, so the world in 2020 to the world of, uh, say, 1929, this really stands out as the key difference that the structure of global development is much more diversified today. There is uh, in, uh, industrialization, manufacturing in the periphery, supply chains are much more complex. And so the stark uh, and really um, you know, unilateral, uh, the, the, the stark, uh, you know, if you want, division, which had one, uh, which one characteristic division that is between uh, manufacturing and raw material exporters that you saw in, 19, uh, in the 1920s, is uh, is really uh, if, you, if you think about the structure is 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 absolutely uh, very is absolutely different from uh, the world uh, uh, we live in today, which is uh, one of the reasons uh, uh, why um, the crisis that we are currently uh, witnessing uh, uh, as it un uh, unfolds uh, may have similar you know consequences that are similarly momentous, but they will by no means uh, be uh, you know structurally the, uh, the very same. Um, and I'd like to bring it back to the current situation that we're in right now. 
Um, so I think two questions here. So how has the pandemic changed your outlook on globalization from when you wrote the article? And you just mentioned how, you know, the economy is so interdependent now. Or I guess it was interdependent in, in the past as well, but in a different way um, now. So how resistant um, is the current architecture of globalization to a crisis as compared to the 1930s? Yes. So, uh, you know, uh, that's that's a great question. So what I did in this piece that I wrote two years ago, um, so which was which, you know, the, the title of it was was how might 21st century deglobalization unfold uh, some historical reflections. And the argument I made there is that, uh, you know, the, the 1930s, precisely for the differences that we just talked about, is, uh, you know, can't be simply pulled out of the hat as a parallel for deglobalization. Again, this makes sense if you simply think of globalization as this two-dimensional uh, process. There's, uh, there's just more or less. And if you ignore the particular structure, if you, uh, if you pay attention to the structure, then uh, it seemed to me at the time um, you would not see, you, you would, of course, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the structure of global economic integration would change. Clearly, it has already been happening with the rise of China um, and uh, China uh, you know, becoming uh, more of a capital exporter and uh, a major trading nation for more partners, especially in East Asia, kind of taking the place of the United States economy. So all of this was happening, but the kind of catastrophic rearrangement, you know, the kind of shock rearrangement that you saw in the global 30s, I did not see on the horizon uh, at all, precisely because of the structural differences uh, that we just talked about, but also because of um, the nature of the Great Depression, which seemed to me a rather unique historical event, actually, if you think about it. Uh, in many ways, yes, it was, you know, a re-instantiation, re-manifestation of cyclical crises, but it had its own particular characteristics. The way I described it in this article is that it was uh, 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 a crisis, an economic crisis that was um, geographically encompassing and at the same time acute. Uh, so a very a, a fairly short time frame. What I mean by that is so between one to three years when uh, when things really started to disintegrate uh, during uh, the great uh, during the Great Depression. And my sense was that this kind of crisis. Uh, really, because of the more diversified structure of the global economy, was not um, was not really on the agenda anymore in the 21st century. So that the circumstances of the late 1920s, the Great Specialization, and here we should also draw attention to uh, the gold standard, which was the contagion mechanism of the crisis at the time. Uh, you know these. Uh, these two characteristics no longer prevailed. The gold standard dictated, if you want, concerted deflationary action on the part of, of uh, economic uh, policymaking authorities across the globe. Today, we live in a world of flexible exchange rates uh, with an inf a technocratic infrastructure of economic management, which is much stronger and much more complex, much more sophisticated. So uh, my sense was, you know, these differences make a replay of that uh, really unlikely. And my uh, one indication for that was uh, precisely the way that the crisis of 2008 played out globally, in which you saw that, well, first of all, there was, um, you know, a very aggressive um, monetary uh, and to some extent fiscal response in uh, the developed uh, in the developed uh, nations, which was very different from what happened uh, in the wake of 1929. So that was one major uh, difference. But the other one was also that this was not a globally encompassing crisis. In fact, uh, precisely the diverse uh, the uh, the diversification of uh, 
of um, economic development globally uh, made sure that, for example, uh, China uh, was, uh, that was really important, was relatively speaking, anyway, relatively resilient to this crisis, which helped, for example, um, a nation like Brazil offset uh, problems that may have come uh, through uh, the pipeline, if you want, uh, from the crisis in the United States by, uh, you know, demand for exports uh, in that came from China. So you, you see how uh, the greater diversification was actually a source of resilience. Now, what I, of course, did not anticipate at the time was a global pandemic that might actually create precisely the kind of acute and encompassing crisis uh, that may, you know, structurally um, compare it to the Great Depression. So if you want, of course, if the contagion mechanism, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, financial historians call this contagion, it's a metaphor, of course, was the gold standard uh, in the Great Depression. Now we're actually talking about uh, a disease that uh, spreads a contagion uh, and uh, econo the economic fallout is simultaneous in a sense uh, that uh, I think the icon uh, economic fallout uh, in uh, 2008 uh, uh, and uh, and after uh, was not. So there is, you know, there is, uh, I think, um, a perspective here that um, that might uh, lead us to conclude that uh, the 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 type of transformations that will come out of this crisis, even though we're still witnessing uh, it uh, unfold, and it's by all means too early to tell. Um, you know, might be as transformative as uh, as uh, in in the Great Depression. Really interesting, um, and I kind of want to expand on that idea of the comparison between the crisis now and the Great Depression. Um, so you talked a little bit about the causes of the Great Depression, the Great Specialization, and the Gold Standard. Can you really briefly, um, especially for the Gold Standard, kind of explain? Um, what that meant for the Great Depression, um, as well as make some comparisons both for the causes, um, the current or the effects, um, and the responses uh, to the Great Depression that we might um, be able to compare to now. Sure. I mean, so the gold standard, uh, this is, you know, uh, a little bit, uh, this sometimes involves some, some technical difficulties. Uh, I always, uh, you know, try to uh, try to uh, explain what it what it means in terms of uh, economic management. Uh, simply that, uh, even though this may seem strange from our perspective today, essentially since the late 19th century uh, into uh, well the decade and a half before World War One, World War One changed things a little bit. But then policymakers tried to reconstitute over the course of the late 20s the gold standard, which which was a dispensation of um, economic macroeconomic management in which the health of domestic economies, the health of domestic agricultural manufacturing sectors were essentially not the priority. Uh, what the priority was the health of um, the exchange rate or by implication, uh, the health of um, international uh, capital flows and uh, investments. There is always a tension uh, between economic openness and your ability to uh, pursue uh, domestic uh, macroeconomic management, especially in terms of being able to pursue uh, stimulative policies. Uh, so there is always a tension. And in that period, which was an expression of the power structure uh, you know, that, that uh, characterized this period in which, uh, for example, the city of London uh, was very powerful, acted, uh, acted uh, as 
the world's banker. Uh, Britain, if you want, in that power structure was more powerful than, uh, say, uh, countries in Latin America. Um, so in, in that world, this, this, uh, this tension was decided uh, in favor. That was the policy prescription, in favor in the moments of crisis where you had to make trade-offs in favor of uh, international connections, international uh, capital flows in particular. What this meant in practice was that it required um, you know, central banks, which were still very different institutions uh, back in the day, uh, because their major goal at the time was essentially uh, making sure that, uh, that financial interactions, financial intermediation based on gold would uh, continue uh, after economic crisis. So it required macroeconomic policy to essentially impose austerity domestically in order to make sure that international economic connections uh, would not uh, suffer. Um, so, you know, this may seem strange today, but uh, the, the, the idea generally was, you know, if there's an economic crisis happening, what you do is you hit the ball even harder against the wall so it will come back more quickly. That was the idea. Now, the Great Depression made clear that turns out if everyone does that across the board, uh, you know, then uh, then it is essentially uh, produces a, a downward, a catastrophic downward spiral uh, in which in which uh, nobody uh, nobody uh, recovers. Uh, and as a learning experience from this, uh, really after World War II, uh, you have um, you have uh, an economic system in which increasingly it is clear that um, the priority for macroeconomic management, which takes place. And this is simply, you know, the way the world is structured politically on the national level more than anything else. The priority will be the health of domestic economies, which sometimes means you have to make compromises uh, regarding uh, international uh, economic uh, inter international economic openness. Now, how this plays out in detail, of course, there are myriad variations of this, but I think this is a real uh, sea change too, which, by the way, dis uh, really uh, distinguishes that second that era that uh, era of economic integration post World War II from that era of economic integration uh, post uh, prior to uh, to uh, 1914. Since the 1990s, I think we saw. Uh, a return to a dispensation, which in any case, um, countries that, um, you know, developing nations, emerging markets, uh, were uh, often pressured to conform to a more liberalizing uh, agenda, essentially, again, move towards a dispensation in which um, international economic openness uh, was a greater priority, uh, not always greater than uh, domestic economic health, but it took on a greater significance, if you want, uh, as a policy priority. Uh, but the tensions, of course, the structural tensions towards uh, domestic economic health uh, did not uh, did not uh, dis disappear. And so I think uh, you know this is this is the mix in which uh, upon which uh, the the crisis uh, currently currently unfolds. I think one additional element that we should bring in, uh, I think that uh, that I pointed out uh, before already, is if you think if you think uh, you know it's not only the dispensation of uh, of macroeconomic management that has radically changed, it's also really the institutional structure that has ra uh, radically changed uh, since. Uh, you know, say, uh, since 100 years ago, uh, since the Great Depression. And this holds true on the domestic level as much as it holds true on the international level. So not only do we have central banks 
today, which are um, empowered and uh, you know capable of, of of doing things that were essentially uh, unimaginable, uh, if you want, in in the in the nineteen in the nineteen thirties. So the type of monetary response that you saw in two thousand eight and you see uh, currently unimaginable in the nineteen thirties. So this is a much more powerful institution, but also on the international level. So the Federal Reserve is a domestic institution, but it turns out it turned out already nine uh, two thousand eight uh, is even more evident today is also. Uh, an institution with a global macroeconomic uh, management uh, clout, but also the inst an institution like the IMF, uh, which comes out of the post-World War II uh, settlement and was initially uh, designed uh, you know, as an institution that would help developing economies tied over balance of payments crises. Um, and uh, then you know, has its own institutional history in the wake of the 1980s debt crisis uh, became a kind of punitive, if you want, a punitive institution for imposing uh, punitive structural reforms on emerging economies ha has since been chastened. I just checked, uh, you know, in, in preparation to our conversation today, because I was interested uh, how the IMF has been responding recently to uh, the, uh, the evolving uh, to the uh, crisis, uh, to the, the crisis that is currently developing in emerging markets, which uh, you know have seen uh, momentous capital outflows um, and declines in remittances. So uh, you know, a squeeze on the balance of payments that uh, is in many ways reminiscent of of, uh, of the 1920s. But the IMF, well, turns out it has uh, you know it has a one trillion dollar lending capacity that of course you know conditional upon um, again policy prescriptions domestically but is available to a certain extent to uh, emerging markets today now this didn't exist back in the day uh, in uh, in the 19 uh, in the 1920s at all it was in fact uh, you know raw material producers so the emerging economies of the day the global south that clamored throughout the 1930s for precisely an institution uh, that would be internationally organized, internationally capitalized, and would help balancing, you know, tidying over balance of payments uh, problems. Of course, uh, you know, the, the, the particular institutional design of the institution uh, of, of this, you know, global uh, lender of last resort, if you want, um, that uh, emerging markets back then had in mind was something maybe someone more democratically controlled, globally speaking, than the IMF ever ended up uh, being. But that does not mean that we should ignore uh, this uh, this uh, institutional presence. I, I do want to talk about something you said in regards to balance of payments crises. So just as kind of an introduction, um, a few sentences, I guess, um, what exactly is a balance of payments crisis and how could this affect the institutions' ability, the institutions that you talk about, their ability to respond to a crisis like this? Yeah, so balance of payments crisis are uh, generally the uh, plight of uh, developing economies uh, in the sense that developing economies uh, rely to a large extent uh, for um, their interactions with the global economy at large on hard currency. And what is hard currency? Hard currency is simply uh, the currency of the, <laughs> of the economically stronger nations. Uh, so back in the day, under the gold standard dispensation, this was gold uh, itself. Uh, pound sterling, which was backed by gold, 
And uh, in the in the 1920s, increasingly the United States dollar. After 1945, the dollar reigned supreme for the longest time. Uh, the euro uh, plays a little bit of a role today, and uh, increasingly uh, China's uh, China's uh, currency, you know, will will count as hard currency too. Hard currency, uh, you know, the the extent to which currency features as reserve currency globally is uh, really ultimately an effect of uh, global economic clout. And so uh, the more you have it, uh, the more you are free from the kinds of balance of payments constraints that may face uh, developing economies. Uh, so what does that mean? Uh, you know, the classical example that I like to, I like to use uh, back in the day uh, is uh, Brazil. So Brazil, since the late 19th century, uh, connected to uh, the global economy uh, really primarily as an exporter of a cash crop, and that was coffee. Um, and so what this meant is that um, Brazil uh, attracted uh, foreign loans, especially from London in the 1920s, increasingly from the United States, to, uh, to fund infrastructural development that would support uh, you know, a deepening uh, and, uh, uh, and also an increase in productivity of the agricultural sector that produced coffee. And then, you know, coffee would be exported, which would earn hard currency, which allowed uh, Brazil to service uh, the loans and to buy uh, manufacturers, uh, manufacturers abroad. Now, what uh, the Great Depression was on the periphery was a great uh, balance of payments crisis. Uh, when loans from the metropole, from, um, from Wall Street in London in particular, all of a sudden no longer came through, when your exports no longer earn hard currency, um, you will no longer be able to service your loans if push comes to shove, and you will no longer be able to afford imports because you have to pay for them in hard currency. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is, again, the lesson that developing nations took from this. Uh, you know, what good is a system of international uh, intermediation uh, if in crisis uh, it essentially forces us uh, to, to make do uh, by uh, ourselves? Uh, today, um, today, the situation is a little bit more complicated because you have very strong exporters, especially in the oil sector, uh, coming out of, uh, well, you know, the post-war period, really the 1970s, uh, the Middle East, uh, Venezuela, uh, but also uh, Russia, uh, who, um, who not only, but uh, to a great extent or to a you know, different extent, you know, depends on whether you're talking about Saudi Arabia or Russia, connect to the world economy and earn a lot of hard currency by exporting oil. Uh, now, before even going into the current uh, crunch in oil prices, uh, what this has enabled, um, what ha this has enabled oil exporters to do is accrue foreign currency reserves that are absolutely substantial and exceed anything <laughs> that uh, you know, say, a nation, uh, a raw material uh, exporter in uh, in the 19th century or in the early 20th century or in the 1920s uh, could boast, um, and that means you have a lot of wiggle room uh, to. Uh, defend uh, your your currency to withstand capital outflows uh, to uh, uh, to remain current on your loans, which will allow you to um, to roll roll them over. Which uh, or to, for example, to be able to say to the IMF, if you give us a loan to tide over trouble right now, uh, you know uh, we're we're in pretty good shape. So this is uh, you know if you want large foreign currency reserves on the periphery is a kind of really war chest for strategic maneuver in, uh, in, in the moment of crisis, which is absolutely uh, essential. Some countries have 
have those, others don't. Uh, so developing nations uh, like, um, like uh, for example, you know, just recently, uh, Nigeria is facing an extreme foreign debt crisis. Ecuador is facing an extreme foreign debt crisis, um, and uh, and this is this is uh, often immediately connected to uh, the relative size uh, of of uh, foreign uh, foreign ex uh, foreign exchange reserves. Now, what you saw uh, just recently uh, unfold, uh, unfolding over the past couple of weeks is also uh, you know a, a kind of um, this this goes back to the, my point about the uh, encompassing and acute uh, crisis. Uh, so investors recalling a lot of funds, fleeing emerging market assets, and uh, this puts pressure on emerging markets. Uh, you know, essentially, what investors do is they present assets uh, to uh, say Ecuador's central bank and say like we would like to sell those uh, and uh, uh, and uh, you give us uh, dollars in return. Now this is. Uh, you know, if this happens on a mass scale, pretty quickly uh, the the central banks of Ecuador will have to say we we can't honor, um, we can't uh, we're out of dollars, we can't uh, honor, um, uh, you know these uh, these transactions anymore, and this might lead to to capital controls, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a kind of, um, a kind of um, whole host of mechanisms that might make it harder for investors to withdraw funds from emerging market but which may have you know the the anxiety connected to that is that uh, this uh, might make investors more skittish to return to these markets uh, in the future though as a historian i should say in parentheses uh, actually it turns out that that anxiety is uh, is mostly exaggerated it's, uh, one one it's amazing to find how easily investors actually come back to uh, to uh, you know offer Capital to um, to players that have uh, not uh, acted, uh, you know, in in terms of uh, of the of, of the best uh, policy prescriptions. But so emerging markets have been, uh, you know, faced by a, a kind of uh, maybe maybe even a double uh, double whammy. Um, so uh, remittances uh, have gone down. Uh, investors are withdrawing the funds. Export proceeds, you know, export proceeds uh, are declining, uh, you know, because uh, raw material prices uh, are declining. So oil here would be uh, would be uh, would be uh, the uh, the big factor. So here again, you know, in the mix that I've uh, you know in this longish answer, uh, if you bear with me, in the mix that I've uh, that I've pointed out, there are real parallels to that earlier crisis, um, that early balance of global balance of payments crisis uh, that uh, was the Great Depression in the periphery, and today. But there are also real uh, differences, which again simply reflect the more diversified structure of uh, development across the global economy. So shifting to the future, uh, in your article, you said, uh, quote, in the 30s, deglobalization did not cause an economic crisis, much rather an economic crisis caused deglobalization. Um, what economic situations do you see possibly unfolding because of this crisis? Um, and do you believe that we will see a restructuring similar to after the Great Depression? Yeah, so I mean, this is you. You exactly picked out essentially the the, the core of the argument I was trying to make in this piece uh, two years ago. Uh, you know, saying that if we if we think about deglobalization again, less in this two dimensional flat way, but if we think of it as a fundamental uh, reshuffling of uh, the political architecture of global economic integration, then I think yes, 
you know, uh, unlike I, I, back two years ago, I thought what we will see most likely in the 21st century is a rearrangement, but a more gradual one. Um, but, you know, this crisis is such that maybe you will see, Ashi, a, a kind of momentous and relatively rapid reshuffling, uh, precisely because the economic crisis is encompassing uh, and uh, acute. Now, what, you know, what, what, are, what are the things that we might see? Uh, what, what, what does this, uh, what does this uh, mean? could mean, um, you know, uh, several, uh, several uh, things. So first of all, the absolute collapse in oil prices. Uh, you know, we saw negative prices um, just, uh, uh, just uh, recently, which, by the way, you know, caused a lot of astonishment um, in uh, you know among uh, among observers, uh, if if you know your history of the Great Depression, um, you wouldn't be surprised, uh, because negative prices in commodity markets is actually something that uh, already boggled the mind uh, of observers in that earlier crisis, and of course absolutely wreaked havoc on agricultural producers, not only in the global south but also in the United States. Negative grain prices uh, prevailed in some areas of the market in the United States in the winter of 1932 uh, and 33. Uh, and what this means is that, you know, this, this crisis is such that, um, well, it uh, throws into question the, <clears throat> the uh, profitability of a lot of excess capacity, what now seems like excess capacity that has been built up in the United States. Um, it might force um, nations like Saudi Arabia to try and diversify uh, you know, their economic mon monoculture much more quickly than I think, uh, you know, they've been trying to make moves in that direction. It's hard and that may now happen or attempts to do that may now happen much more quickly uh, than uh, otherwise. Same goes uh, for other big oil exporters, uh, say, um, say, um, uh, uh, Russia. So, but but that's that's just uh, one example. I think another one is, and this is something that you know I, I confess I hadn't anticipated as something that is economically really uh, absolutely fundamental is uh, strategic health uh, supplies. Uh, it turns out that in a global pandemic, um, having to import, uh, say, medication. Um, having to import health supplies, uh, personal protective equipment, masks, ventilators, uh, tests, vaccines is uncomfortable for a nation that may, uh, you know, be politically at odds or may become even more so uh, with, uh, with the nation from which, uh, on which it re relies uh, on imports. I'm talking, of course, about uh, the United States uh, and China here. So I think what we will witness, I think this is actually fairly certain, is, you know, if the crisis of the 1970s caused the United States to establish the strategic oil reserve, I think in the future we'll see something like strategic vaccine reserves uh, that will not, and decidedly, uh, you know, uh, this is then by political design, not rely on global supply chains, but actually be sourced uh, nationally. Uh, so, you know, you might call that deglobalization, but you also might call it, you know, a reshuffling of uh, the structure of uh, economic integration. Um, you know, the same, uh, this, this triggers a kind of rethinking uh, this crisis. I think you see, uh, you see um, instances of this uh, already here and there about, um, about uh, the stability of a global economy in which uh, 
supply chains are so diversified that uh, essentially they're very fragile. So if you know if there is one uh, if if uh, if there's one link that falls through, usually supply chains can can adapt pretty quickly. But uh, if you have a couple of links snap, which is which is what uh, happens, what might happen uh, during again uh, an acute encompassing uh, crisis. All of a sudden, it seems wiser to have some strategic manufacturing ca uh, capacity, uh, actually, uh, you know, built up uh, domestically. So uh, you know, you hear uh, noises to that effect uh, coming from Europe, uh, coming from uh, uh, voices in uh, in the United States. Um, and uh, so, you know, this is, this is I think, uh, another way in which um, the structure of global economic integration might change. And this, again, is, is similar in, in, in reaction to, um, to uh, the crisis that was the Great Depression in the 1930s. You saw those nation states that could, that were capacious enough to do so, try and establish... Um, if you want strategic control over uh, supply chains, strategic control over resources that were, uh, especially at that time, for uh, that were militarily um, neuralgic and strategically uh, important, and something similar, you know, I think can be expected for uh, for the next uh, five years, a decade or so, or even longer than that, uh, in uh, manufacturing, in uh, you know, health supplies. Uh, and in uh, in terms of uh, some commodities that are being currently uh, you know battered uh, battered um, uh, battered most uh, most uh, severely. What this means for uh, you know uh, average citizens is very hard uh, to predict, and it really also depends on uh, you know on where you are uh, in terms of uh, of your uh, economic uh, you know the, the the sector you work for. Um, in terms of um, uh, simply, if, if you work in services, if you work in uh, if you work uh, in manufacturing, uh, it is you know it's been said that this might uh, entail higher consumer prices. You know the big advantage of uh, you know this very uh, this very diversified supply chain uh, global economy that that we've seen was that it really allowed. Um, Really allowed for very low consumer prices. For example, in the United States, electronics have been uh, have been remarkably uh, have been remarkably cheap. Uh, so I'm not talking about the monopoly prices, um, you know, charged by Apple, uh, but I'm talking about uh, simply things like uh, TVs, uh, uh, stereos, uh, microwaves, that kind of stuff ha has been remarkably cheap. Now that may you know change as a uh, as a result of that it's unclear at this point this might be offset at the same time by a global deflationary uh, environment uh, so so uh, but uh, so i think you know uh, what what we what we can expect is uh, is uh, capacious states being uh, more aggressive in trying to exert control over supply chains for what is seen as uh, strategic uh, uh, resources so uh, again, uh, commodities of a certain stripe, uh, you know, health supplies, uh, uh, manufacturing, increasingly, I think biotech. I think that will that will be um, that will be uh, th this crisis. I think will catalyze uh, these uh, these kinds of uh, developments, deliberations, and developments. Um, and just ending off, do you think that policymakers who have looked back to, let's say, the 2008 crisis and the Great Depression have, by and large, learn their lesson when it comes to let's say stimulus spending something you mentioned or um, I guess monetary policy easing um, do you think the lessons have been learned there? <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I think um, on the one hand, yes. So on the one hand, I think there is a clear, in a very clear way in which um, you know lessons were drawn from from the Great Depression institutionally, and this begins you know even already after World War II. I mentioned uh, you know the IMF. You might say that this was a learning experience from uh, the global fallout of the Great Depression of a particular type. Another really very straightforward example is the response of the Federal Reserve in 2008 under Ben Bernanke. Who uh, who is uh, you know, was a monetary policymaker, uh, economic policymaker, of course, but uh, in his first professional guise uh, was uh, an economic historian uh, who worked on the Great Depression and took very seriously the monetarist lesson of the Great Depression, which was that what made the Depression so severe in the United States was this spectacular collapse of the money supply, uh, which was uh, a result uh, of gold standard orthodoxy and uh, a pro-cyclical, if you want, monetary policy that was entirely misguided. Uh, and uh, so Ben Bernanke has said this if you, at the time and after that, if you read his memoirs very explicitly, this is, uh, was a direct example influencing the Fed's, um, the Fed's very uh, powerful uh, monetary response uh, at the time. It seems to me that the time, uh, type of hyper-aggressive response that we've seen from central banks and indeed in fiscal policy, which uh, you know has been much more aggressive than even 2008, is uh, in, in turn a learning experience from the success of this policy in 2008. It seems to me that the type of the magnitude simply, the swiftness and the magnitude of the responses, I think we would not have seen if it hadn't been for that earlier uh, crisis in 2008. So you might say, of course, you know, in that sense, uh, the lessons, policy lessons have definitely uh, been learned. And uh, so uh, for the better. On the other hand, I think, you know, we, we have to, uh, we have to, I think as a, as a historian, I would insist that um, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, these economic transformations, they're not, um, and crises are uh, not, simply a technocratic uh, problem in the sense that, you know, uh, what, is, what are the best policy mechanisms to, uh, to, to use? Like each policy mechanism uh, will have uh, trade-offs built into it, will have certain uh, advantages and disadvantages, uh, winners and losers. And how those play out, I think, is what we want to pay attention to uh, as we go forward. Well, thank you, Professor Link, for joining us. Please join us for our next episode. Thank you.